Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today I have the privilege of interviewing a faculty member at Beeson, my colleague and friend, Dr. Osvaldo Padilla. Welcome, Osvaldo, to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you, Dean George. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I want to start by asking you to say a little bit about your own background, uh, kind of where you came from and how you came to know the Lord, and anything you want to say uh, that kind of introduces our listeners to you as a person and as a Christian. Happy to do that. Yeah. I was born in the Dominican Republic and lived there until I was about 13 years old. And then uh, after a, a family uh, breakup, we moved to the United States, my mother, older brother and sister, and myself. And after a few years of living in America, we all came to know the Lord. My mom was the first one who went to an, an evangelical church and heard the gospel preach, became a Christian the first Sunday she heard the gospel. Wow. Then was my sister, then was myself, and then my brother, who is now a pastor. Um, so that was a great change in our family. And uh, soon after my conversion, I started preaching, uh, studying the Bible, and felt a strong call uh, to Christian ministry uh, and attended uh, the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, yeah. which some good years there. Yeah. Then went up a little bit further north to uh, Deerfield at Trinity and then uh, completed a Ph.D. even further north in uh, Aberdeen, Scotland. On a different hemisphere. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I think we first met you. I first met you when you were at Trinity. Uh, you were teaching yes. there before you came to Beeson. That's correct. Uh, so uh, take us from, you mentioned Chicago, Moody, Trinity, Deerfield, over to Aberdeen. That's a little bit of a, a move. Uh, tell us about Aberdeen and what you did there, with whom you worked, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, Aberdeen had a very good reputation, has a good reputation for biblical studies. Uh, Howard Marshall, of course, uh, the late Howard Marshall was mm. there. And uh, Dr. Andrew Clark, also a, a great scholar, and Christian was there, and uh, I had a few conversations with him, and it seemed like a good fit. Also, the British the British system of uh, research and writing your dissertation with a coursework appealed to me, and, and things went well there. Then after that, I, I moved to Switzerland, uh, Lausanne, Switzerland, to uh, do a, a postdoc of sorts uh, at the University of Lausanne with uh, Professor Daniel Marguerat. Yeah, what a beautiful uh, place, Lausanne, on the Lake Le Mans, Lake Geneva. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, my heart is there in some ways still. <laughs> and, and that was a good time, uh, learning the language, learning French, uh, continuing to study uh, the Book of Acts, and then uh, coming to uh, Trinity after that. And then we met, and uh, the possibility to come to Beeson open, uh, which was a great privilege. Uh, a number of things drew me to Beeson, the interdenominational uh, ethos of the school was very important. I've always enjoyed um, mere Christianity, as it were, the big doctrines of the church that are shared by all Christians and have been shared by Orthodox Christians throughout the, the centuries. So that was very important. And also I, I felt that at Beeson, even though there is this ethos, you could still be a good person of your denomination. So you certainly hold to that mere Christianity, but you could be a good Baptist, uh, you could be a good Presbyterian or, as myself, a good Episcopalian, and the two are not divorced. The, yeah. 
we like to say we are interdenominational, but not anti-denominational. Yes. So we, we respect and honor the various denominations represented and want our students to have deep roots in, in them with integrity, but also to be open to uh, learning together, growing together in Christ. Well, now you mentioned uh, Acts, but before we get to your work on Acts and this new book you've just published, we want to talk about that. I want you to say a little bit about your beautiful wife who's actually looking at me right now. She's here in the studio. In fact, she's in the studio every week because she's the producer of the Beeson podcast. Tell us how you met Kristen. Well, Kristen was a last semester student when I was a first semester professor. And I always have to say that uh, we met and she was not in any of my classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we met through the uh, Beeson community and became good friends. Uh, and uh, realized that we wanted to be more than friends soon after that. And we've been married for six years now and have one boy, four-year-old Philip. A beautiful young man. Uh, we love Philip, and we, we love both of you so much, a part of our community. Now let's go to Acts. Uh, you, what drew you to Acts? I mean, was it the fact that I, Howard Marshall, was such a great scholar of Luke and Luke Acts, or was it something else? Yeah, before I, I've ever heard of uh Howard Marshall, as a very young Christian, uh, the first book we studied at church was the book of Acts. And I was just uh, gripped by the conversion stories, uh, by the uh, work of the church, by the community of the church. And uh, that book got me on fire for the Lord. And um, I wanted to get deeper into it. And that's when I started to discover people like Howard Marshall and his work on Luke Acts. But uh, mainly the the conversion, the power of the Spirit, uh, beautiful community uh, of Jew and Gentile together, all of that just gripped my heart uh, as a young Christian. You know, we, we refer to this book as the Acts of the Apostles, but I've heard it also called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, maybe is a better title for it. What do you think? Yes, yes, that's certainly appropriate. Uh, the Holy Spirit... Uh, I would say, is perhaps the main character in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, pushing the the apostles who were quite hesitant to go from uh, a Jewish-centered world to a Gentile world. And without the Spirit, they would never have done that. You know, uh, many people focus on on the story of Jesus, and there's a kind of Jesusology almost that develops in some Christian theological circles that distances Jesus uh, from uh, in the Gospels from Jesus of the early church. Mm-hmm. And it seems that uh, Acts is a kind of bridging transition between those two communal realities. Is that right? Yes. I think the Acts of the Apostles sits in a uh, strategic place in the canon where on the one hand Jesus reaches back to the twelve, uh, and then on the other hand he reaches out to the early church uh, so that we have uh, the, the four Gospels and the Epistles uh, all brought together uh, by the Jesus that we find in the book of Acts. So I think that's certainly accurate. Now, I'm going to ask you about your new book. It's from InterVarsity Press Academic, IVP Academic, called The Acts of the Apostles, Interpretation, History, and Theology. 
Uh, it's actually the second book on Acts that you've written. Your first book was called The Speeches of Outsiders in Acts, Poetics, Theology, and Historiography. And so maybe we begin by just talking about the speeches. Now, when you read, when you think about Acts, what do you think about? You think about the day of Pentecost. You think about Peter. You think about Paul, of course, his conversion, all of this. Those seem to be more deeds, happenings, events. But in some ways, you focused in your research on the speeches in Acts. That's correct. And and part of that, I think, began with the, the fascination with the preaching of the early church. And uh, if you think about it, Acts is the only canonical book where you can hear the the sermons of the apostles uh, directly. There is no other canonical book where you can hear Paul, what Paul's preaching was like, uh, what Peter's preaching was like, uh, Stephen. So uh, that that was that is important, I think, and uh, and that's one of the things that drew me to the speeches. Uh, I find that the speeches are in almost every chapter of the book of Acts. And that in some ways, the speeches uh, help to summarize the action of the book. So the speeches serve uh, as a hermeneutic, as a way to interpret what is happening in the book, in the book of Acts. So the actions are, are that, the deeds, the actions. And in some ways, the speeches, although they are also actions in their own way, they, they help us interpret what happened. So you mentioned Peter at Pentecost, the speech of Peter there in Acts chapter 2 is an explanation of what has happened. Now, some people are saying that the apostles are drunk. And his answer is, uh, no, it is uh, it's what was written in the book of Joel, the gift of the Spirit. And so the speech there serves to interpret what has happened at that great event. Yeah. Same thing with Peter at Cornelius' house. Yeah, Acts 10. Uh, there his speech explains uh, why God is moving in this way. So the speeches, by the mere fact that there are so many of them in the book, and also how they are um, an interpretive framework for the deeds, uh, for those reasons, I think, and, and others, they're, they're very important. Now, of course, the speeches are different because they're given in different contexts and in different places and cities and by different people. But it, is there a pattern in the speeches? Is there a formula or a way in which the speeches are trying to do something that you can thematically talk about? Yes, uh, and there has been a work written uh, quite a few decades ago by C.H. Dot uh, called The Apostolic Preaching, where he traced how um, the different speeches, whether by Peter or Paul um, or Philip, uh, there is a theme, the theme of the life of Jesus Christ, uh, the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all according to the scriptures, uh, and an emphasis uh, that the death, life, death, and, and resurrection of Jesus fulfills uh, the scriptures. So that uh, mere uh, Christianity that we spoke about at the beginning, I think C. H. Dodd has made a good argument, and I agree that that you see that in the different speeches of Acts. So in some ways, it's the gospel compressed into a summary form. Yes. Uh, because we, what we have in the speeches must must be summaries. I mean, they said more words than we have in the text, right? I, yes, that's a, that's a keen observation. And I think that's very important for, for us modern readers. In today's world, if, if the president, uh, President Obama gave a speech, and I would ask, uh, I'd like to see what he said or hear what he said. You would provide provide me with a transcript, 
mm-hmm. right? Every single word. Well, that's not how it was in the ancient world. Uh, in fact, quotation marks didn't exist in the ancient world. And so what you have is a what I like to call a creative summary of what the speakers actually said. So, for example, uh, uh, Paul preaches at the Areopagus, the famous sermon of Acts 17, and it takes you maybe two minutes to read that speech. And yet from other parts of Acts, we know that Paul was given to rather long sermons. Uh, someone uh, fell asleep uh, as he preached through midnight. Um, it was one, Eutychus, right? Eutychus, a yes. man, Eutychus. Yes. Uh, so we know that Paul was given to long sermons, and yet when you read the sermons in Acts, they are compressed. It takes a couple of minutes. So the expectation in the ancient world amongst serious historians was that you would provide a summary, uh, uh, a gist of what the speaker actually said. And so that's what we find in the Acts of the Apostles. When was Acts written? Yeah, there is debate on that. Um, there is a tendency nowadays uh, to say that Acts is a second century book, which I don't I don't share that view. Uh, more than likely, we're thinking about uh, between 70 and 80 AD. So the late first century, mm-hmm. after the fall of Jerusalem, most likely. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Uh, there is a... Uh, there is no talk of the temple, so we're not sure, but uh, certainly the late first century. Now, wh- one of the parts of your subtitles, the Acts of the Apostles, Interpretation, History, and Theology. Now, we talked a little bit about interpretation and theology, but I want to focus on history for a moment. Wh- one of the things I remember in, in studying Acts when I was a theological student in the debates about Acts is the question of, is this historically accurate? Uh, did what Acts says happened really happen? Yes. Uh, are the miracles that are reported in the book of Acts uh, miraculous? Is the history historical? Would you say a little bit about that debate and how you understand uh, history in the terms of the book of Acts? Yes, that, uh, that certainly is a debate that has been going on and is still going on. Um, let me address it from, uh, from a disagreement first. A number of scholars say that the best way to understand Acts is as a historical novel. Uh, And so uh, what you have is not events as they actually happen, but uh, as they could have happened. And uh, the author of Acts is just a creative, uh, realistic novelist of what happened. Uh, I disagree with that. Uh, I think that there are various reasons why we should view Acts as a uh, authoritative, accurate, and dependable history of the early church. Uh, one of those is the preface in the gospel, the gospel of Luke, the first volume, where Luke uh, emphasizes the fact that he was an eyewitness of the events he describes and also that he interviewed eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, for example, in, in from, Acts, uh, from chapter 16 on in Acts, you have the first pronoun we included, uh, as Luke was a companion of Paul. Uh, and also, one interesting thing is that when you compare the book of Acts uh, to other contemporary historians of the period, there is a modesty, uh, there is a, a plainness, not in the bad sense of the word, but a straightforwardness that you don't find in these other historians who love to embellish uh, you just find a very straightforward history in the book of Acts. There, it has a texture of truth, I would say, that, that leads you to believe that, yes, this, this is true. Uh, ultimately, of course, 
only the Holy Spirit can can uh, put in us the conviction that that it is true. That is the word. But I, but what I like to say is that as history, uh, saying that the Book of Acts is history is claiming that the events described in the book correspond to the events as they happen outside the book, mm. and that there is a one to one correspondence between what is written in the book. And the events that happen outside the book, the external world. Yeah, let me ask you a related question. Um, again, this is a debatable point in New Testament scholarship, I think. The relationship of Acts to the epistles, especially the epistles of Paul, because Paul's a major character, of course, in Acts, mm-hmm. and describes his conversion, Acts does, I think, three times, three different occasions. So. Are the epistles accurate and Acts not, or vice versa? How do you correlate those? Yes. Again, you're hitting on uh, on one of the significant debates on the book of Acts. It was uh, a German scholar in the 20th century who, who, who did a lot of work in this area. Philip Philhauer was his name. And he suggested that the theology of Paul, as you find it in the epistles, on the one hand, and on the other hand, as you find it in the speeches of Acts, are just different. Uh, and so um, there, there are two different Pauls, the Pauls of the Epistles and the, and the Paul of Acts. However, the consensus today, even among scholars who don't have a high view of Scripture, is that there is, in fact, a lot of um, thematic unity between the Paul of the Epistles and the book of Acts. And that where you do find differences, it is one of emphasis, and it is uh, in the main due to the different genres. So Acts, of course, is a historical, theological history genre, uh, and it is written not by Paul himself. And Paul writes epistles, a different genre, by, uh, by, by himself, even if using a, uh, an amanuensis. But, but it's a different genre, and the differences in genres uh, could uh, explain why sometimes we find different emphases in the theology of Paul as found on the one hand on the speeches in Acts, and on the other hand, in the epistles. But again, the, the consensus today, um, one scholar, for example, Daniel Margarat, who's written uh, the premier French uh, commentary in, in Acts, he who, again, is not uh, does not have a high view of Scripture in the way that, that you and I would hold, uh, would say that no, no longer can we believe that there are two different Pauls, the Paul of Acts and the Paul of the epistles. The answer you gave to that question seems to me in continuity with the work of someone like F.F. F. Bruce of an earlier generation, or I. Howard Marshall himself. That's correct, uh, yes. Would you say a word about particularly F.F. F. Bruce and his importance uh, as a pioneering scholar in this field? Yes, yes. That uh, F.F. F. Bruce is, was uh, a meticulous scholar, uh, was a classicist by training, who then became a New Testament scholar, and he was gripped by the Acts of the Apostles. Um, and when he compare histories contemporary with Acts and uh, previous to Acts as well, he came to the conclusion that Acts is, is a, uh, a faithful historical record of the early church. Howard Marshall, uh, who uh, was also uh, a British scholar, came to similar conclusions as F.F. F. Bruce, and, uh, and and that has been the trajectory uh, amongst evangelicals uh, of viewing Acts that way for 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 good reasons. Um, and in fact, I mentioned in this book that one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book is 
to continue that trajectory of F.F. Bruce and particularly Howard Marshall, uh, trying to do for a new generation of scholars what Howard Marshall's book, Luke, Historian and Theologian, did for a previous one. I belong to that generation. <laughs> I read that book when I was a student, and it had a great impact on me. So mm. I hope uh, students today will read your book and have uh, just as enlightening an experience with it. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you a couple more questions. One, uh, there is a chapter in your book, I think it's the last chapter actually, which is called The Justification of Truth Claims in Acts, A Conversation with Post-Liberalism. So tell us, uh, Osvaldo, what is post-liberalism and why do you want to have a conversation with it? Yes, uh, uh, some people uh, of uh, whom I have spoken with about the book have said uh, that they feel that this chapter uh, sits a little bit uncomfort uncomfortably with the rest of the book because it is so overly theological. I don't view it that way. I think that that in some ways it is the it is the uh, the crown of the book, uh, the the climax of the book, um, because the book of Acts is a book about truth claims. The main truth claim is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Uh, and one movement in within Christianity that has been gaining momentum uh, for the past 50, 60 years is, is, is post-liberalism. And they are all also asking questions of truth claims. Post-liberalism um, stems from an attempt, a desire to move beyond liberalism, uh, where it was said, it was taught that we must first begin with philosophy and prove philosophically and apologetically that God can't speak. And only then do we go to Scripture. To the extent that we can prove philosophically that God can speak, only to that extent can we speak of God. Scripture comes behind that. Well, beginning with Karl Barth and uh, extended by scholars like Hans Frey, who was the long, uh, long-time professor at Yale and others, uh, they said that we don't need philosophy to uh, give us the green light to speak about God. Uh, we go to the Holy Scriptures, and there we meet God. There God speaks to us. Um, and that is, that, that is a good thing that post-liberalism gives us. However, there is a weakness in post-liberalism. For example, in the work of uh, George Lindbeck, a very famous theologian. And that is that when you ask the question, why Christianity why Jesus Christ are not Muhammad or another religion, uh, sometimes they don't have a good answer. Uh, and while I feel that post-liberalism is helpful to us in reading the book of Acts as the word of God and understanding how history and theology fit together, I think that there is a need in post-liberalism to uh, have a stronger uh, epistemology, a stronger uh, pneumatology of the scriptures to be able to claim that the only way to the Father is Jesus Christ and to recommend that claim to others outside the faith. So uh, the chapter is uh, interacting with post-liberalism, helping liberalism hone how we read the book of Acts, but at the same time asking liberalism uh, post-liberalism questions about how to go about justifying the truth claims that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And I think the ultimate weakness that we find in post-liberalism, as, I, as I've said previously, is that there isn't a strong, a robust view of Scripture. By contrast, in the book of Acts, 
the reason why the apostles make the truth claims that Jesus Christ is the Messiah is because his death and resurrection and life are according to the scriptures and the apostles are witnesses of these things. And where is that eyewitness found? It is found in the scriptures. So I see that as a weakness in post-liberalism where they can learn from from evangelicals, but we also have a lot to learn from that. Now, I have one more question. Uh, Our friend, Dr. Kevin Van Hooser, who teaches at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, and has written about your book, he says, Dr. Uh, Padilla has given us here an introductory text that not only illumines the book of Acts, but also encourages Christians today to act out the acts of the apostles. He's quoting that from John Donne, to speak out their speech acts. Now, I want to ask you, this is kind of a practical theology question. Uh, how do you see the book of Acts encouraging Christians today to act out the acts of the apostles? I think it encourages Christians today in the same way that it was meant to encourage the original Christians who read the book of Acts. Right, I think that what Luke is doing is showing them how the apostles and the close companions of the apostles uh, unceasingly preach the gospel. And by writing that, by recording that, he's not just uh, writing mere facts, but he's also trying to do something with that, and that is to encourage his audience to, to speak, to preach the gospel. And as the Word of God for us today, uh, that challenge is there for us uh, and I think one of the main themes that you find in the book of Acts is that Christianity is missional. Christianity is missional from its core because it is about uh, the God who sends his son Jesus Christ on a mission to the world. And that the church needs to imitate that in, uh, in deed and certainly in word by preaching uh, the gospel. So you really cannot be a church, uh, I think the book of Acts would say, if at the same time missions, preaching the crucified and raised Jesus is not at the center of who you are. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Osvaldo Padilla. He is Associate Professor of New Testament at Beeson Divinity School, and he is the author of a brand new book from InterVarsity Press Academic called The Acts of the Apostles, Interpretation, History, and Theology. Thank you, Osvaldo, for this wonderful conversation about this exciting book in the New Testament. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.